Church of Christ, David Allen. He has been there uh, several times. He has been at Northside for over 16 years. He is married to Kim. They have two children. Kim is with them tonight, so I hope you get a chance to meet her afterwards. We're looking forward to David because he's going to be talking to us about grief. How do we work through grief? David? Good evening, Mac. Man, it's great to see y'all. I love this church. I love your ministry staff. Mark's over at Northside tonight, so we did kind of a preacher swap. I don't know if they're going to get the best of this deal or not, but I've got some things to share with you tonight. The subject that I've got, Doug, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. I really do. Barry was over at Northside last week, I think, and so it's just been a blessing. Um, I'm going to talk about grief tonight. And I, it, you know, most preachers like to start with kind of a humorous story. Uh, it's hard to come up with a humorous story when your subject is grief and mourning and death and loss. And uh, But I did come up with a story I'll share with you as we start tonight. It's a story about two brothers who were very wealthy. They lived in a small town. And everybody in the town knew them and knew that how wealthy they were. But they also stood out not just for their wealth, but also for their profligate lifestyle. These guys were really sorry individuals. They were adulterers and they were, were drunkards and uh, they were thieves and everybody knew it. Well, one day, one of the brothers died. And the other brother went to one of the local churches and found the preacher and said, I want you to preach my brother's funeral. But when you preach his funeral, I want you to tell this city, and everybody's going to be here, they're all going to be wondering what you're going to say. But I want you to get up and I want you to say that my brother was a saint. And if you'll do that, I'm prepared to give this church a million dollars. But you've got to say my brother was a saint. Well, that kind of put the preacher in a dilemma because I don't know too many preachers that want to turn down a million dollars. But the day of the funeral, the guy said he'd do it. The preacher said he would do the guy's funeral. The day of the funeral rolled around and the church was packed, the preacher stood up behind the coffin and said that the man who lies before me was an adulterer and a liar and a drunkard and a thief. He was a horrible human being and the sinner and a sinner of the worst sort. But compared to his brother, he was a saint. <laughs> That's an old story. Thank you for laughing. And the point that I want to make from the story is that death and loss and mourning and grief come into everybody's life. It doesn't make any difference whether or not you're rich or you're poor, whether or not you're young or you're old. It doesn't make any difference what your station in life is. Every single one of us experience grief. It's not the exception to our lives. It's the rule. We all live with death and loss. And grief. In fact, let me, just by a show of hands, how many of you have experienced a significant loss? You can talk about the death of a loved one or you can talk about other kinds of loss. How many of y'all have experienced a loss in the last year? How many in the last two years? Keep holding up your hands. Five years? That's a bunch of us. A lot of us have experienced death and loss. And Solomon was right. There is always going to be a time to mourn. Now, the Bible has something to say about death and loss and how we should respond to it 
as Christ followers. In fact, the Christian faith has a very robust theology of death and loss and mourning. And so what I want to do this evening is share some thoughts with you along those lines. And to do that, we're not going to stay in Ecclesiastes, although we're going to refer to Ecclesiastes. What I want us to do is look at John chapter 11 at the story of Lazarus, Lazarus, the raising of Lazarus. I don't know if you've got your Bibles with you tonight, but we're going to read through that story and I want to make a few points for you. And so let's start with John chapter 11. We'll read verses 1 through 15. John says, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who had poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. And so the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews tried to stone you and yet you're going back there? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. After he said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples were crying, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. And so then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. When I think about death and loss and grief and mourning, three words kind of jump to my mind, and I want to share those with you tonight. The first word is shock. Because loss comes in many forms, and it's always unexpected. A young couple put their little baby boy in bed one night, and he's healthy and pink and vibrant, but he never wakes up. And the doctors say it's sudden infant death syndrome. An elderly woman watches her husband and soulmate of 50 years slowly succumb and die from cancer. A teenager's driving home one night. He takes a curve a little bit too fast. And he runs into a tree. A husband and a wife meet at a lawyer's office and they go before a judge to sign the papers that dissolve their marriage. A young couple have been trying to have kids for months and months and years and they just haven't been able to have a child and they go to the doctor, and the doctor says, it just may never happen. A young woman gets her fifth rejection letter from medical schools, and she realizes that her dream from grade school to be a doctor is probably not going to happen. A man goes to, the work, to work to the company that he's worked for for 25 years, and when he gets there at work, they inform him that they're having to downsize 
And they give him his pink slip and say, clean out your desk. You've got to be gone by noon. Death and loss come in many forms. It's always a shock. That's one of the things that makes it so difficult. In this story of the, of the death and the raising of Lazarus, there's not one hint at all that there's anything wrong with Lazarus. The disciples really have, they're completely unaware that anything is amiss. And then Jesus finally has to tell them, no, he's dead. Now, you guys are studying Ecclesiastes this summer, and I love Ecclesiastes because what Solomon does is he talks about the way life is instead of the way we would like it to be. Okay? And in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, he says, I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no man knows when his hour will come. A fish, As fish are caught in a cruel net, as birds are taken in a snare, so men are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. Death, loss, mourning, they all happen suddenly and unexpectedly. I mean, you're going through life and you don't have a care in the world. And then you get a phone call. Now, I'm not trying to be morbid here, but, but each of us at any given time is really just a few seconds away from having death and loss of some kind be crashing into our lives. And we all have stories, don't we? we if we ask for testimonies tonight, y'all, we could line up and we could go, every single one of us could tell a story about how death or loss of some kind came crashing into our lives. My, the, the story that I resonate the most with goes all the way back to 1996. You, you said I'd been here, about, been here about 17 years, actually, okay? In 1996, they hired me over at Northside I came down on June 2nd, 1996 and preached my first sermon as the pulpit minister of the Northside Church of Christ. It was a wonderful day. On our way back home, back we lived in Longview at the time, on our way back we went through Dallas to, to, through Mesquite where my parents lived because for the last couple of years my dad had been struggling with cancer. He'd been diagnosed with lung cancer. And it had gone to his brain. And we, 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 he'd been struggling for a long time, and we understood that. But we had a great visit with my mom and my dad and my, and my family that was there. We drove back to Longview, excited about our possibilities here in San Antonio. We start, continued packing. The movers came on Wednesday, and they started putting all of our stuff into the moving van. And about 11 o'clock in the morning, I get the phone call from my brother. I could tell he was been crying. He said, Dad, he's dead. I was shocked. I was shocked. I knew he was ill. I'd been a minister for 13 years up to that point. I mean, I knew. I knew what was going down. I knew what was going to happen. But I was still shocked. My mother ended up having, I don't know if it was dementia or Alzheimer's, but she ended up being in an Alzheimer's unit, and we knew that she was doing, going to be doing poorly as well. A couple of years later, 1999, she passes away as well. I get a phone call from my brother. It's still a shock. That's what makes death and loss and mourning so one of the things that makes them so hard. It's always unexpected. It's always a shock. That leads to the next question or the next word, 
And that is the word question. Because here's the thing. God does not shield us from death and loss. He doesn't shield us from death and loss. John 11, verses 5 and 6 say, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, yet when He heard that Lazarus was sick, He stayed where He was two more days. He did not run to Bethany to prevent Lazarus' death. He let Lazarus die. Yes, He knew that He was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, but no one else knew that. All they knew was that Jesus could have been there to help. It was only a couple of miles. He could have made it in an hour. And He didn't show up. And that brings up the question, you know, how can God allow tragedy and death and pain and loss in the world, but how especially can God allow faithful Christian people to experience tragedy and death and loss just like everyone else? Well, here's the really hard truth. The hard truth is that there is no correlation between a person's faithfulness to God and their susceptibility to tragedy and death and loss in life. Now, I sometimes think we think there should be, or, or, or that sometimes there is. We think that if we're serving God, that somehow these things should not enter into our lives, or bad things shouldn't happen to us, or we should get everything that we want, or we ought to be able to do everything that we want. Now, think about it. If that were the case, we would all be serving God out of self-interest. We wouldn't be serving God because we loved Him and trusted Him. We'd be doing it for what we could get from Him. So when bad things do happen to us, because we sometimes, I think we expect this, we think that somehow we're going to be inoculated against tragedy and bad things, when they happen, it throws us for a loop. Listen, friend, the Bible does not say that God is some type of a good luck charm or a talisman that wards off bad things in tragedy. In fact, it says just the opposite. For instance, three times in the beginning of the book of Job, I mean, you can look it up. It says that Job was blameless and upright and that he feared God and, and that he turned away from evil. Three times and still he suffered tragedy. Multiple tragedy. In Ecclesiastes, the point is that Solomon's looking around and he's saying, look, friends, I, I'm looking around at life and, and I don't see the correlation. Bad things happen to good people. Good things happen to bad people. It's all under the sun. Everybody experiences this stuff. Jesus said in Luke chapter 13 and verse 4, He's referring to an accident that His, that his listeners obviously knew about. Because He said, are those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? In other words, Jesus is saying, they didn't deserve that any more than anybody else. And in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 verse 45, Jesus says, your Father in heaven causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Listen, faithfulness to God does not mean bad things won't happen. God does not shield us from grief and loss and mourning and heartache and tragedy. But let me be quick to add here that if you do question God in the midst of tragedy and mourning, it is perfectly natural, it's perfectly normal, it's even logical. I mean, even if you get angry with God, you've been mad at God. Even if you get angry with God, it's 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 absolutely normal. Now, here's the sad thing: 
The sad thing is that a lot of church people don't think that. A lot of church people say, listen, you can't express, you can't talk to God that way. You can't express your anger to God. You need to just kind of kind of suck it up and you, you keep those expressions to yourself. And we especially don't want to hear those things in church. In fact, I have spoken to people who when in the midst of grief, they try to express their anger and their questions at church. They get shut down because people don't want to hear it. Because somehow people think, well, that, 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 denies, that uh, connotes a, a lack of faith or a lack of trust. And you know, that's a tragedy, folks, because in the Bible, honest questions and even expressions of anger directed towards God are seen as a part of faith. Look at John 11, verse 17-31. On His arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet Him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. She said, well, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. In other words, Jews thought and kind of believed in kind of a general uh, resurrection at the end of time. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in Me will live even though he dies, but whoever lives and believes in Me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord. She told Him, I believe that You're the Christ, the Son of God who has come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he's asking for it. And when Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to Him. Now Jesus had not entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met Him. And when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw Him, she fell at His feet and said, Lord, if You had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Well, it's just really interesting to me. Mary and Martha they, they both ask exactly the same question. Or they say exactly the same thing. If you had been here, he would not have died. In other words, what I'm hearing here is, is an accusation. I hear them saying, where were you? You love us. We love you. Mary's thinking, I'm the one that I poured all this perfume on your feet. I anointed you. You know how much I love you. You're supposed to be here to protect us from stuff like this. We even heard through the grapevine that you found out four days ago. And you knew he was sick and you could have come and you didn't. Where were you? Folks, honest questions are a part of faith. They're a part of faith. Psalm 42 verse 9 says, 
Listen to what the psalmist says. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? In Psalm 22 and verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And even Jesus on the cross, he doesn't blame, this is what he quotes, and he doesn't blame the Romans for his death, he doesn't blame the Jews for his death, he blames God for his death. Why have you forsaken me? He blames God. Now the Bible language for this is lament. It's complaining to or crying out against God. It's a huge part of the biblical language. Over a third of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. For instance, in Psalm 102, the psalmist says, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry for help come to you. Do not hide your face from me when I am in distress. Because of my loud groaning, I am reduced to skin and bones, for I eat ashes as my food and mingle my drink with tears because you're of your great wrath. For you have taken me up and thrown me aside. The psalmist, he's expressing exactly what he has felt like he's experiencing. He says, God, what this feels like is you've picked me up and you've just cast me aside. Now this makes it, this made it into the Bible. No one said, uh, 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 you, shouldn't express, you shouldn't say stuff like that to God. How much time do you have? Uh, this is not in the bill, but this is Psalm 88. If you got your Bibles, turn to Psalm 88. This is my favorite psalm in the Psalter. It's called the saddest psalm in the Psalter. I, I'm just going to read it, and it's not up here. Just, but listen, let me, just listen to it. Psalm 88. O Lord, the God who saves me, day and night I cry out before You. May my prayer come before You. Turn Your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of trouble and my life draws near the grave. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm like a man without strength. I'm set apart with the dead like the slain who lie in the grave, whom You remember no more, who are cut off from Your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily upon me. You have overwhelmed me with all your ways. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to You, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to You. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do those who, who are dead rise up and praise you? And those are rhetorical questions. And I think the answer is no, because he's saying, I'm not hearing anything from you, God. Every day I'm crying out. I don't hear anything from you. Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry out to you for help, O Lord. In the morning my prayer comes before you. Why, O oh Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth I have been afflicted and close to death. I have suffered your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. They have been completely engulfed me. And this is how he ends the psalm. You have taken my companions and loved ones from me. The darkness is my closest friend. That's in the Bible. 
This guy's taking up a complaint against God. He's saying, you did this to me. Job 7, verse 11, Job says in the midst of his suffering, therefore I will not keep silent. I will speak out in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. And it's interesting, at the end of the book of Job, Job says, God says to Job's friends, uh, you have not spoken faithfully of me as my servant Job has. And I'm sure they thought, hey, well, wait a minute, he's, he's been complaining to you the whole time. And God says, yeah, but he was complaining in faith. It's a part of the struggle, the wrestle with faith. Let me tell you, something I don't have to tell some of you, some of you need to hear this, but a lot of you say, oh no, I understand this. Sometimes when you're in the midst of grief, it feels exactly like God has abandoned you. And folks, we need to allow one another to be honest with God and share our grief and loss and even our doubts. The, the title of this is how do we work through grief? We work through it together. We do it in community. I mean, God forbid that we communicate that we can't honestly and openly question and, and challenge and share our grief and our pain and our heartache. It's part of the struggle of faith. It's so hard to do. i tell you one of the reasons it's hard to do it because we place such an emphasis when we're together on a celebration as worship or worship as celebration. We want to come together and everybody wants to have a big happy, happy, happy face. I'll tell you, Honestly, to some people in the world, that rings a little hollow. It's like we're not telling the truth. In fact, there have been people who have gone to preachers and said, you know those Christians up here at this church, they're just all so happy. We're so uncomfortable with grief and mourning and loss. There is a lady at our church, some of you know her, She's been mourning the death of her husband for years. Years. And almost every time I see her in, in the foyer or I see her, when people see her, they want to run the opposite direction. Because she, I, I, saw, I walked out of the auditorium Sunday after services. I walk out and she's heading towards the restroom and I see her and she has tears again streaming down her face. And she's mourning the loss of her husband. I miss him so much. Why can't I go home to be with God? I'm so tired of living alone. And what we want to do with that is we want to say, okay, that's enough of that. Just suck it up, will you? At least don't bring it up here. Now, you can feel that way if you want to. Don't bring it up here, okay? This is a happy place. So what we do is we gather together and we say, uh, how you doing? We're fine. We're fine. But sometimes we aren't fine. And sometimes we don't feel like celebrating. It, this is really important because every Sunday there are people at this church building who almost didn't come to church because they're hurting and they're in anguish and they're experiencing loss and what they secretly fear is that most of the people present in our assemblies are more confident in God than they are. You with me? 
And so they feel even more alone. Because we come and we all put on our masks and we come to church and we're not honest. We're not honest with God and we're not honest with each other. All because we don't want to deal with grief and loss and mourning. Here's, what you, here's, the big, here's one of the big takeaways uh, to that. God is big enough and He is loving enough to take your questions and your anger and even your accusations and we need to give each other permission to communicate those things to God. Maybe we should design, I've heard, I've heard preachers say, uh, Lynn Anderson say before, maybe what we need to do is just design uh, an assembly around lament. And let's just cry out to God. So we have all these questions. Shock, questions. And then there's a final word and we can't leave without this one. And that's the word hope. Um, John chapter 11 Verses 38 through 46. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb, and it was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the, the, the sister of the dead man, by, by this time there is a bad odor, for he's been dead four days. And Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And then Jesus looked up and He said, Father, I thank You that You have heard me. Jesus has already been praying about this. He's already been talking to God about it. I thank You that You have heard me. I knew that You always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe that You sent me. And when He had said this, Lazarus called out in a loud voice and it gives me chills to think of it, Lazarus, come out! The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done, and so on and so forth. In the next chapter, John says that the raising of Lazarus is actually a sign that points not only to the resurrection of Jesus, but also to the resurrection that all of God's people will someday experience. What the Bible says is that Jesus has conquered death. Jesus took death and sin upon Himself on the cross, and in the resurrection He shattered the stranglehold that death has on every one of us. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter's preaching that first Gospel sermon, he tells the Jews, you, with, in Acts 2, verse 23 and 24, you with the help of wicked men, put Him to death by nailing Him to the cross, but God raised Him from the dead, freeing Him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on Him. Death couldn't hold Him. And now because we're followers of Jesus Christ, it can't hold us either. Now that changes how we see death. It changes it. For instance, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-6, through 6, Peter writes to these persecuted, beleaguered Christians and he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. That belongs to you. You have an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. It's kept in heaven for you 
who through faith have shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Times are difficult. Death is still a reality and we experience loss. But folks, there is an inheritance that is waiting for us at the last day. And it changes how we see death. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13, Paul says, we do not grieve like the rest of people who have no hope. A few years ago, a man was watching helplessly as his wife and the mother of his two daughters died slowly of cancer. And he kept a, a journal all through the journey that he went with her as she was dying. And this is what he wrote one day. He said, the last few days have been both agony and ecstasy. Agony at watching my wife suffer. Agony at my own bitter helplessness. And yes, unbelievably, ecstasy. A grounded certainty that this woman, the finest person I have ever known, will soon enter a glorious life, never again to be touched by pain, helplessness, separation, or grief. Folks, we know that death is not the end. We remember the words of Jesus in John chapter 14 when He says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in Me. In My Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I'm going there to prepare a place for you so that you may be with Me where I am. And I'll come back. And I'll take you to be with Me. <laughs> we have hope for eternity. But folks, our hope here's the... Our hope is not just for eternity. It's also for right now, today. It's not just pie in the sky by and by. It's also what's living, happening in our lives right now. As Christians, we understand that death and loss and all of this are just a part of life and we don't have to avoid them. We don't have to live in denial. Let me go quickly. Arthur McGill is a theologian in the 60s. He was diagnosed with a, with a terminal disease. He, wrote a, he gave a series of lectures that were then compiled into the book, a book entitled Death and Life in American Theology. And what he posits in that book is that there's a very noticeable denial and avoidance of the subject of death in American culture. Uh, we don't even like to, we don't like to talk about it. We don't like to use, we don't even like to say the word died. We say he passed away. Right? You know, um, we, we don't want to think about death. We don't want to talk about death. We spend billions of dollars trying to push the aging thing away and we have plastic surgery and and all kinds of stuff going on, and creams, and all that stuff. And, and in general, he says, what we do is we venerate youth, and we despise old age. And he says that part of the reason we do that is because we see death in Western culture as kind of just a one point in time when the body expires. And what he suggests is that we should take a much broader view of death, and we should see our whole life as kind of a continuum of, just little steps where we're kind of really kind of dying every day. Those of you who are my age and older, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Every time you go to the doctor, you're reminded of just how a little bit more you're dying. But folks, the gospel informs all the losses that we experience. It reminds us that death and loss are part of life, but they're not the end. They don't have the final word. And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Now I've got to be finished in five minutes. So let's circle all the way back around to kind of where I started. Okay? 
Jesus didn't go to Bethany to save Lazarus. God does not shield us from death and loss. Yes, Jesus knew that He was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, but Mary and Martha didn't know that. All they knew was that Jesus could have helped them, and He chose not to. God did not prevent what was happening to them. But though God, here's the point, though God does not shield us from death and loss, we can take confidence in the fact that God comes toward us in our grief and when we experience loss. John 11, verses 14 and 15, So then He told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. Here's the punchline. But let us go to Him. Let us go to Him. Let's go to Him now. It's a statement about God's character and His steadfast faithfulness, faithfulness that He comes towards us when we experience death and grief and loss. He will not shield us. He won't prevent it. But He comes toward us. And so, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Trouble? Hardship? Persecution? Famine? Nakedness? Danger? Sword? In other words, death? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. God comes toward us in our experience of death and loss and grief. There's a time to mourn, there's no doubt. But mourning never has the final word. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful. We're thankful that the Gospel informs all of our lives and everything that we experience. Father, when we experience loss, we thank You for coming close to us. Help us to recognize Your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless. Thank you.